from west to east and kingdom to kingdom, you're listening to the Diz Unplugged Connecting with Walt podcast. Connecting with Walt is brought to you by Dreams Unlimited Travel, experts at helping you plan the perfect Disney vacation. Visit them on the web at dreamsunlimitedtravel.com. Hello and welcome to episode 104 of the Diz Unplugged Connecting with Walt podcast. I am your host and Diz historian Michael Bowling, and I am joined by my co-host, producer, and good friend Craig Williams. Craig, how are you today? I'm not doing too bad. How are you, Michael? Oh, I'm doing well. Thank you. We we're talking before the show. We both are in an early heat wave yeah. where we all live. So, yeah, um, Florida is awful, but yeah. everyone always expects that anyway, so that, that's not too much of a surprise but for you. <laughs> yeah, our summer started a bit early. We're well into triple digits up yeah. here, so... I just can't believe anyway. that. I know we already went through all that off off yeah. mic, but my gosh, that's... It's, it's bad here, but I think we only had one day in triple digits. Yeah, yeah, I think it's 110 <laughs> right now. <laughs> so, so awful. It's crazy. But I do like the warm weather. But I really have a, a – these days, I really have a respect for pioneers and, like, people in the colonial times because the way they dressed – yeah, and wool and the layers and all that, and they didn't have air conditioning and they had humidity and they were in the heat. And you know, I I mean, I still go to work and I wear the starch shirts and you know I have an undershirt and I wear the leather shoes and all that. And inside the air conditioning building, it's fine, but outside, it's it's a little uncomfortable dressed in layers and all that. And you know, I I have no idea how. The early pioneers did it, and all that. I mean, they, that they were hardier stock yeah. than we are. Well, and I mean, you know, we also have over the past hundred and ten years, we've just completely destroyed our entire environment and <laughs> caused all this climate change. So we've made it a little worse on ourselves too. But yeah, they still had a rough. <laughs> yeah, they did. I mean, and and even like cooling off, going into going into a swimming pool in a full. Uh, in a, in a full dress and stuff. That also wasn't <laughs> yeah. smart. So they, yeah. what a weird time to live. It was. But anyway, well, oh, you know, I mentioned that I'm going to Pacific Northwest Mouse Meet July 27th. It's sold out. They announced the speakers. Mm. And so it's, uh, it's exciting. It's going to be um, author and Disney historian Jeff Curdy mm. and animator and director Ron Clements. And Imagineer Joe Rohde. Oh, very nice. That's an yeah. awesome lineup there. That is a good lineup. So I should have a lot to talk about when I get back from oh, that. Oh, sure. And they're, apparently they're planning an event for Sunday, July 28th as well. But they haven't announced what that is. And I, I think something goes on on the Friday evening or before, but I don't know what that is. So anyway, so... So more to come on that, but that sounds very exciting. It's my first Pacific Northwest Mass Meet. I'm looking forward to it. Yeah, no, I'm so. I'm jealous about the Ron Clements. I mean, it's yeah. nothing against Jeff Curdy or Joe Rody, but it's well, I've I've never heard Ron Clements speak, yeah. uh, and uh, you know, and being the little snob that I am, of course, the name dropper, I I've heard Jeff Curdy. He's been on the show, yeah, and and you know, we both heard Joe Rody speak, so I'm looking forward to Ron Clements. So. Yeah. It, it'll be fun for you. Yeah. Oh, yeah. It will be. So, oh, and we want to wish a happy 91st birthday to Richard Sherman. You know. The, yeah. Yeah. I mean, and he's still going strong. So. <sighs> yeah. I mean, I hope I'm in the, the same boat later on. Yeah. Yeah, me too. I mean, he's still singing and composing and making appearances and all that. So, so very happy birthday and thank you for just putting our lives to music. <laughs> and 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 to his Robert, to his brother Robert, who of course we just commemorated the seventy fifth anniversary of the D Day invasion, and and his brother was a part of that. Yeah. So, um, so anyway. 
So, well, you know, over the next two episodes of Connecting with Walt, we are going to take a look at the lineup of films for uh, the Tuesday, June 25th, (laughs) 2019 broadcast of the Turner Classic Movies Treasures from the Disney Vault. So Craig and I are going to share some information about these treasures from the Disney Fault films and shorts. We usually don't go into heavy critiques of these films. and Instead, we'll share some stories, and I hope it will increase your enjoyment and appreciation of these films. We may share our memories and thoughts about these films. Now, Craig, with the Walt Disney Company's new streaming service, Disney Plus, scheduled to go live in November, is there any word on the street or on the back lot about September maybe being the final installment of Treasures from the Disney Vault? I have not heard or seen anything about it, uh, but I I don't know if I would expect it to just go away um i don't you know because it's obviously it would i I don't well i guess it shouldn't be an obvious thing because i really don't know the details of of the deal but my main assumption would be that that tcm is the one paying the uh paying for the the rights to show these disney features um Mm -hmm. you know maybe it started with a kind of a that joint partnership where TCM put money into the great movie ride and in return they were able to air uh, air all the Disney movies and shorts but for I'm sure after that entire thing kind of dissolved away now they're they're probably paying for the right to to air those Disney Disney movies and shorts and like, like I said I could be entirely wrong on that so I apologize if I'm just uh, being completely airheaded about it but it, it i know disney wants to protect itself from you know like the debacle that they they got in by um selling like the selling television rights to turner which obviously it's the same thing here but uh selling the television rights for like some of the star wars movies and such to turner and that kind of put them in a bind uh, as they they were looking forward to the streaming service and stuff, so uh, I know that they they do kind of look at, at who is licensing their movies and stuff. And I, I would say, for a lot of the stuff that is on Treasures from the Disney Vault, I don't think that's on their main priority of stuff they need to protect from mm-hmm. being in other places. Um, and the stuff that's being shown on there, you know, especially uh, some of the stuff earlier in the night, it's always coming with that that introduction from Leonard Maltin, where even if he's not giving a lot of the context like he used to on the the intros of the of the Walt Disney Treasure tin sets, he still gives a little bit of an intro, and especially he'll say a thing or two when it's it's not as appropriate as it was when it was originally made so uh it's still it's still able to add that context in every here and there and so i i think it's only it's only beneficial for them to to keep some of the stuff alive on there um because if if tcm's paying disney for it and it's not that's not the content that's necessarily keeping people from signing up for disney plus then then really there's no downside to it so but something like star wars obviously disney wants that all on their own they want they want people to sign up to disney plus for that they want people to sign up for all of the new animated movies they want people to sign up for marvel Uh, they i don't think i i could be wrong i don't think Bob Iger and anyone else in that division really cares about the library of classic movies like the fans do. So mm-hmm. it's well, only time will tell, but I predict it continuing on for for a while at least. Okay, yeah. And you know, it's not it, they always the one thing about Turner Classic Movies too is they have maybe the the lesser known of treasures from the Disney vault. Yeah, yeah. And so these even may, they may be able to promote films that maybe people just wouldn't get around to on Disney streaming. Well, and that's, that's a good point with it. They, they might open up the world to some of these movies that then, uh, 
if it is eventually or from the start on Disney Plus, then you're really just you're promoting these movies saying, like, if you mm-hmm. liked it, you'll be able to watch them all the time you want now on mm-hmm. Disney Plus like this, this entire lineup, uh, which we'll get to here in just a, a couple seconds. I mean, it, all of the movies in this lineup, basically, with the exception of one of them, is a lot of stuff that you probably haven't seen before or it's not something you would necessarily say oh all these are on disney plus well i'm definitely signing up for for some of these ones that's it's just not the case so um you know knowing that you're going to sit down and watching it on treasures from the disney vault and then saying oh well if i if i am on disney plus i can watch these in the future again if i really love them that much i mean that's i see that as a huge benefit but Mm -hmm. That's just me. No, I agree. I, I think this is still a great cross promotion for Disney Plus if they keep it on Turner. So, yeah, and, and Turner does. Turner cares about the products that they show. So, um, so it's just best for everyone, in my opinion. Yeah, I agree. Well, let's keep our fingers crossed. So, well, this month's theme seems to be thieves, detectives, espionage, and spies. So, Craig, do you want to run through the lineup of what we can look forward to? Yes, I would love to. So, um, again, the the date of this will be Tuesday, June twenty fifth, mm-hmm. starting at eight p.m. Uh, we have from nineteen sixty four, the Moon Spinners, and then. Uh, following that, at 10.15 p.m., we have Bone Bandit with Intro with the Littlest Horse Thieves. Uh, and then at 10.25 p.m., we have the Littlest Horse Thieves. <laughs> blah, blah. The Littlest Horse Thieves from 1977. At 1.15 a.m., we have the Robber Kitten at 19.35. From 1934, <laughs> which will be the intro into the North Avenue Irregulars, which will start at 1.30 a.m., and that's from 1979. This was a hard one to read this this time around. Uh, <laughs> 3.15 a.m., we have Emile and the Detectives from 1964. And at 5 o'clock, you'll find Never a Dull Moment with Never a Dull Moment from 1968. <laughs> and that's it. Good. Yeah. And and uh, some of these are some of my favorite live action films, so, so yeah. I'm looking forward to to getting these because I actually own some of these. Yeah. So I've had an opportunity to rewatch them recently. The yeah. only one I believe I have seen, I know I've seen it, but I I can't remember how long it's been. Is the Moon Spinners mm-hmm. and other besides the shorts, but other than that. Uh, like the the North Avenue Irregulars and Beale and the Detectives, uh, and never even never a dull moment. None of those are are clicking with me at all. So yeah, I saw the North Avenue Regulars when I was in college, and I just remember laughing through the whole thing. But that's next week. We'll talk about yes. that. So, but uh, and you know the hard part too as we go through this is that there, there's the there's the films during Walt's time of which there are many, many stories about behind the scenes and the making of them that because of course there was Walt. So everybody was writing everything down after Walt. It was, you know, these films were done by committee or, you know, Walt wasn't there. The, the, his personality wasn't there. Nobody recorded anything. Nobody wrote down anything. There are no stories. There are no books about, you know, how the North Avenue regulars were made. You know, how never a dull moment was made. I mean, they just aren't there so you're going to find that we're going to be very rich in some of our discussions of these some films and in some of these it's really going to be just the facts it happens yeah (laughs) anyway so so craig what 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 are your snacks of choice when you settle in to watch turner classic Mm. movies from Um, the disney vault always changes but lately i've been on the kick of uh of dumping Nestle Bunch of Crunch in my popcorn, so I get the mixture of sweet and salty. So, oh, okay. Yeah, it's yeah. you know it's perfect for your health. 
<laughs> me, it's it's buttered popcorn with lots of butter. <laughs> I mean, and then you know maybe it's a soda, maybe it's just water, something, maybe sweet iced tea, something like that. I rarely, I mean, that's it. I mean, it's just like I'm a popcorn person. I don't yeah. usually eat candy at the movie theaters. Yeah. Or I only do bunch of crunch. Mm-hmm. But that's always been the way for me. I don't know. Yeah. It's so weird. <laughs> and, you know, maybe, maybe later on I might have ice cream or something. Oh, those Mickey bars finally made it <laughs> into our local grocery store freezer case. Yeah, so. <laughs> they they sold out, like, right away the first round that came out into our stores. And it was impossible to get them. And now I can tell, like, our, our Publix that's right beside us is, like they feel terrible because they doubled down on how many they should order and they're just Mm -hmm. constantly promoting them and every time i walk in it looks like no one has bought them oh the the the, the minute they stock them they put them on sale here and and they're they're around six bucks for the box so that's better than here it's 719 so i might as well just pay 130 (laughs) dollars and go to disney after hours and steal a backpack full yeah really Anyway, so so I might have a Mickey bar, you know, later on, since I have four boxes in my freezer at the moment. They're so, small, so yeah, they are. <laughs> so okay, well, the nineteen sixty four suspense filled film, and that wasn't easy to say. The Moon Spinners sets the tone for the evening at eight p.m. This film stars eighteen year old Haley Mills, and this was her fifth out of six films for Walt Disney, and she received her first on-screen adult kiss uh, from her co-star, Peter McInery. McInery? However she says it. You know, it always sounds good in my head. Um, The film was directed by James Nielsen, who had previously directed Bon Voyage, Summer Magic, and several episodes of Zorro. The producer was Walt Disney. The co-producer's Bill Anderson. Associate producer was Hugh Atwell. The screenplay was by Michael Dunn. And this was based on a novel by Mary Stewart. And the Moonspinner song was by Terry Gilkison, so, which is a, a haunting little melody. Now, the film is about a jewel thief hiding on the Greek island of Crete, and Haley Mills stars as Nikki Ferris, who is spending time in Crete at a small inn called the Moon Spinners with her aunt Frances, who's played by Joan Greenwood. One day she meets a handsome young man named Mark Camford, and that's Peter McInerney, whom she later finds wounded in an empty church nearby. Turns out that Mark was once a London bank messenger, but he lost his job after a major jewel robbery. So he was tagged as a suspect. So Mark made his way to the moon spinners to gather evidence against the owner, Stratus, who's played by Eli Wallach, who Mark thinks is the real jewel thief. Nikki and Mark fall in love, well, who wouldn't have seen that coming, and embark on a wild adventure in pursuit of Stratus. And for folks who are classic film fans, a lot of the names that I just mentioned, some of these actors, they were very, very well known at the time. So um, so our younger listeners may not know who some of these actors were, but for Walt to have some of these actors in the film, and I'm going to name a couple of more. Um, this was this is a real coup for him. Oh yeah, no, uh, like I, Eli Wallach. I mean, I am a huge fan of the good, the mm-hmm. bad, and the ugly. Yeah. So like he, that is a big plus in my book. Yeah. Well, I'm. I'll wait. To, I'm going to name one that, it, it, even though. She had a very, she's well known, you know, decades before this film was made. She was still revered mm-hmm. in the film industry, and for Walt to get her was amazing. Um, now, Walt Disney described this film as Disney type Hitchcock during his introduction for the film's television debut in 1966. And, you know, it is similar to the Hitchcock formula of the 1930s in the way it injects dry humor in the film through the characters of Aunt Frances Ferris, played by Joan Greenwood, again, who was 
a, a, a very well-known actress at the time. And Madame Habib, played by silent screen star Pola Negri. And, and that is definitely, film history buffs know that actress, um, Pola Negri. Um, so for Walt to get her was huge. Um, the scene in which the teenage son of the owner of the Moon Spinners Inn, uh, Alexis, played by Michael Davis, who was one of my favorite characters in the film, because his character, I, I don't know how old he was he was a young teenager but he was he obviously he, he plays a greek boy who obviously learned english through like american slang dictionaries or something so and, and he played it just so sweetly and so naturally anyway he rescues Haley mills from a windmill by jumping on the windmill's blades climbing through a window then jumping back on the blades to jump to the ground below and that's very reminiscent of Hitchcock in its camera angles and a very very frightening point of view shots of the character from the characters as they jump onto the blades and spin around during their escape oh, yeah and it's ridiculous like even when when you say spin around, like we're talking like all the way to the top, like mm-hmm. no one would in their right mind would hold on to the blade spinning that long. Um, I know. <laughs> I, I was trying to figure out if these are stunt doubles or something, but I feel it, like they probably weren't. <laughs> I know. I don't think they were. I the way that it was filmed, you could see their faces. Yeah, it's like pretty well, much. You know, kids can kids climb trees, so why can't they hold on to a windmill as it goes around? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Anyway, that it that is an amazing scene, though. Um, now, this film has the, the unique distinction of being made due to the insistence of Walt's wife Lillian Disney, and in, in an interview, co-producer Bill Anderson said, "I had just finished Moon Pilot, and Walt says I have a problem at home." I said, "What's that?" I knew Mrs. Disney, and I knew he didn't have a problem with her. Well, I've spent all my life dragging Lillian to see my pictures. She's been a good sport about it. Now she's come up with a story, and I've read it several times, but I can't find any way to do anything with it. Would you read this book and see if you can think of any way we can make a film out of it? She thinks it would make a great movie. I said, well, I don't want to disappoint her, so I said, okay. The book was The Moon Spinners by Mary Stewart. I read it, and, well, it was kind of intriguing. So Walt and I got into a discussion. I said, well, in a mystery like this, to really care, we should know what the mystery is from the beginning, so we can be sympathetic to the young guy that's got the problem. No, he said. We'll hold all that back, and the mystery will come out later, but the mystery will lead the audience. I said... I don't think they're going to care a damn about the mystery once they find out what it is, unless we see it and we care about him. But we made it his way, and I still say that's basically what's wrong with how the story plays. When the two of them are in that cave and he tells her what the hell is going on, you can just feel the audience slip. Mrs. Disney never thought I did a very good job with her story. But Walt was the one who made the decision. Still, he tried very hard. He wanted to make a good movie out of it. Yikes. And uh, I feel like this kind of storyline has been told in TV shows and in movies in the past before when it's always, uh, we're going to do this because my wife wants to and she's going to lead the charge (laughs) with it. Yeah. And, you know, I have to agree. I didn't know this story when I was recently rewatching the Mood Spinners, but I have to admit when the Haley Mills character, Nikki, keeps asking Mark, why are you doing this? Why are they shooting at you? Why? <laughs> I can't tell you right now. I just can't tell you. And I'm thinking, okay, oh, for God's sake. I mean, really, you have been running all over Crete here i mean at some point you should tell her and by the time he does tell her in these ruins it's like i didn't believe him i figured he was another shady character so i think bill anderson was on the right track that we needed to know a little earlier on what the story was Um, well if only they would have had like a director's cut out there someday (laughs) yeah 
So, um, anyway, so filming took place on location in Greece with the interior scenes filmed on sound stages at Pinewood Studios in England. The Greek village of Elonda, I'm sure, and I apologize to all our Greek listeners, um, was selected as a location of the film, and the scenery is one of the best parts of the film. The village provided beautiful backgrounds of the sea, the sky, and the coast. However, time in World War II had took its toll on this town, so the Walt Disney Company almost completely rebuilt it. According to the studio publicity, the town underwent a 20th century renaissance a la Disney. The studio employed 100 local workmen, 100 tons of local stone, 25 tons of plaster, 25,000 feet of lumber, 500 gallons of whitewash, 200 gallons of paint, 2,000 sheets of plywood, 1,000 cubic meters of sand, and tons more of roof bamboo, vines, and exotic plants to rebuild the town. Now, as part of this reconstruction, the studio crew laid concrete roads, installed telephone lines, and built two permanent buildings, the Greek Orthodox Church and the inn that's seen in the film. In addition, the crew had to build furniture, including beds, and a huge water tower because there was no water pressure in the town. And they also built the windmill that we just talked about that was seen in the film. And they talked about how at the water tower, everybody had, uh, they had uh, water tanks on top of each of the buildings. And everybody filled up the water tanks in the morning, and that's what you had. And they didn't refill the water tanks on Saturday and Sunday. So, um, so anyway, so, so it was, it was, uh, they, they were definitely living under, uh, less than ideal conditions. Yeah, but I mean, the, the town is still, uh, still thriving to this mm-hmm. day so who knows if it wouldn't if it would be if it wasn't for for disney coming in oh absolutely and the moon spinners inn is still there yeah it's it's a little restaurant i mean people go to it they, yeah, they make their pilgrimages to it that's how you connect okay. with walt in uh in greece in, in crete yeah in crete <laughs> that's right now the crew was scheduled to film in Crete for only three weeks, but the primitive conditions on the island caused so many delays that filming took three months. Uh, The local people on Crete were very cooperative and very pro-American. When President Kennedy was assassinated during filming, the people there reacted very strongly, and they offered their condolences to the crew. After after an, well, another construction challenge was a luxurious yacht of Madame Habib that's called the Minotaur. Now, the yacht was chosen from a photograph on a calendar. So when the second unit director, Arthur Vitarelli, went to Athens to get the materials uh, that he needs, some materials that he needed, he asked to see the yacht. And to his great surprise, he found it was rusting. It had a lot of tears in the hull, and it had been converted into a ferry boat. So Vitarelli phoned the art director, and in during the conversation learned the art director had never actually seen the boat. So the studio had to put a lot of work into restoring the yacht, including paying for a new propeller and shaft. That's insane. Yeah. So. yeah, it, it is a beautiful yacht, though. Yeah, but that's how you learn your lesson. Uh, check it out in person first. Don't just judge yeah. everything you see by your calendars. That's right. <laughs> so. The studio took great pains to make the film as authentic as possible. The wedding dances were performed by dancers from the Lyceum of Greece on Crete, which is dedicated to preserving Greek art and costumes. Some of the dresses worn by the dancers are three centuries old. In the carnival scene, the masks and figures were created by Kokorolanianis, a designer for the largest carnival in Greece. Now, a couple of significant scenes were cut from the final film, which might leave audience members feeling an important sequence is a bit disjointed. 
Earlier, we talked about the windmill scene in which Nikki Ferris is rescued. It appears that Alexis just happens to be walking by when Nikki screams, and he discovers she is imprisoned inside. Well, a key scene had to be cut from this sequence. Originally, Alexis had a pet owl, which Nikki and Aunt Frances had met in another scene cut from the film. In the shooting script, the owl flies up and perches on a windmill beam as Alexis passes by. Seeing the owl, Nikki realizes that Alexis must be near, so she starts yelling and screaming, but her voice is drowned out by the wind and the loud noise of the windmill sails. Um, Nikki then tries to coax the owl to go to Alexis. Instead, the owl swoops down towards Nikki to catch a mouse, causing Nikki to scream. And then the rest of the scene continues as we see it, with Alexis thinking he had heard something and discovering Nikki. Bill Anderson, though, stated that these scenes had to be cut, but none of it could be carried out convincingly, even with a stuffed owl. So, The Moon Spinners was the American film debut of Peter McHenry, who had already appeared on the London stage and in some British films. He later starred in a Walt Disney film, The Fighting Prince of Donegal. A highlight of the film for many is seeing silent film star Paula Negri as Madame Habib towards the end of the film. Ms. Negri had retired in 1943, but her name reminded many around the world of glamour and the exotic. So Walt Disney coaxed her out of retirement for this film, and Bill Anderson phoned Ms. Negri at her home in Texas and persuaded her to read the script. She was strongly considering appearing in the film when her closest friend and companion, Margaret West, passed away. She reluctantly agreed to travel to the Walt Disney Studio to discuss the project. In her autobiography, Miss Negri wrote that it was Walt Disney who convinced her to come out of retirement for this role. Mr. Disney was truly a wonderful gentleman, fully aware of what I was going through and responding to my situation with warmth and sympathy. I was still hesitant to make a commitment to go through all that again. Mr. Disney, I don't think I have the strength. I'll take the responsibility for making things easy for you, he responded. If you come to London, you won't have to do anything but give your performance. Miss Negri threw herself into the character and even suggested a script change. In the script, Madame Habib was to have a pet Siamese cat. Miss Negri suggested replacing the cat with a cheetah. Now, this added to the personality of the character of Madame Habib, and it injected humor into her scenes as characters reacted to the cheetah. Miss Negri even agreed to generate some publicity for the film and showed up at a London press conference for the film with the cheetah on <laughs> leash, of course. And, and, and this would be Miss Negri's final film. I like that. I like the cheetah story. That's yeah. an awesome one. Yeah, and I love that, that it was her suggestion. Yeah. So, um, right. and It's, it's good know, to hear that Walt was, you know, it actually would actually allow something like that. It's. Yeah. I, it doesn't seem like there's. It doesn't seem like there's many people in the industry who would be that open to to suggestions like that. I know there's plenty of stories from time to time about actors, you know, bringing their own stuff to the role. But usually, it's with comedians doing doing movies that are very improv heavily based. But uh, this is a complete different circumstance. So it's a cool story. Yeah. Yeah, and and I think Walt saw that it would add to the story. Yeah, you know, and Walt was all about storytelling. Uh, it definitely um, when you when when you watch the Moon Spinners, you're going to see that a Siamese cat would not have brought the same level of humor and antics and um, and and eccentricity just to the scene and to uh, and to the character of Madame Habib. 
Yeah. Uh, the Moon Spinners was released on July 2nd, 1964, on a double bill with the Yellowstone Cubs that we talked about in our March edition of Turner Classic Movies from the Disney Vault. Most critics found the Moon Spinners too juvenile in its playing and plotting, and adult audiences found the film too juvenile. So... Anyway, and juvenile audiences stayed away, thinking the film was too adult. Perhaps the title put audiences off, since it did not give a clear indication as to what the film was about. Um, The Moon Spinners was an expensive box office failure for the studio. So rather than re-releasing it to theaters, as was standard practice by the studio in those days, Walt decided to cut it into a three-part program for the weekly Walt Disney's Wonderful World of Color television series, and spent a large amount of money promoting it. Unfortunately, cutting it up and airing it over three weeks just caused confusion over the story for television viewers. So... I enjoyed the Moon Spinners. I rewatched it recently, and it's it, it's that era of films where they take their time to tell the story. But what I really enjoyed about it is is you you see you see a land from you know a time in our past mm-hmm. where you do see the, the they bring out a lot of the culture they bring out a lot of the traditions as we talked about you know the beautiful scenery there they take the time to develop the characters where you know a lot of films don't do that anymore you know they take the time for the storytelling and then the action comes and i like that i think a lot of films we were losing that because we we hop from one action scene to another yeah i i mean like i said i i know i've seen this and i i remember i remember the windmill scene perfectly um it was it stayed with me like you know every now and then there's a movie that you find uh to be pretty forgettable but there's always that one thing that stays with you and and that's kind of what this is for me in my head um i I remember that perfectly i remember a lot of the scenery uh which is really good but uh i i just remember when i saw it which had to be 15 years ago maybe more uh i was just slightly bored with it so Mm -hmm. uh, i'm i'm looking forward to revisiting it now uh, at, at my age with and hopefully seeing a different side of it uh, appreciating it a little bit more for what it yeah. is yeah and I think you get a feel that Walt had a respect for for the culture and 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 so he wanted to tell a little about it I mean even where a key scene takes place in a Greek Orthodox church you know it could have taken place anywhere else but uh, but the fact that it was set in a church with the with the traditional um, art that you would have, you would find in a Greek Orthodox church I, that uh, that the studio built. <laughs> I, I get it. You're, what yeah. you're saying is that Walt Disney was the original Adam Sandler, planning oh. movies where he could take all of his friends to exotic locations just yes. so he oh, could film absolutely. there. Absolutely, that's right. <laughs> yes, he did that with Twenty Thousand Leagues Under the Sea, yep. and he did that with uh, <laughs> Treasure Islands, his family Robinson. Yep. <laughs> so, anyway, so I recommend this film. I, I think it's a lot of fun. I think the story's intriguing. It it transports you back in time to a land and culture that you know existed at the time. So, it's fun. So, next we travel from the Greek Isles to the British Isles with a stop in the United States at 1015 for the Pluto cartoon short Bone Bandit, released on April 30th, 1948. This is directed by Charles Nichols, and this is another story which Pluto has a run-in with another animal. This time, it's a gopher who is stealing Pluto's bones to use as supports for his underground lair. And Pluto is not happy, and the gopher attempts to thwart him by using Pluto's allergy to goldenrod against him. And this is just, this is a fun film. I like Pluto. And, um, you know, it's just cute. Yeah, it's, I mean, uh, my only issue with uh, Pluto cartoons at at points in time is they're they are all very similar 
mm-hmm. it, especially when it's Pluto having a confrontation with a different animal. Um, yeah. it's, it's not one note, but it all starts blending in. But th- this is a good one. And the gopher <laughs> is, is adorable. He is. He's cute. He's not like that gopher from the Winnie the Pooh series. Yeah. <laughs> okay. We don't need you hating on Winnie, Pooh, Winnie the Pooh tonight. So, anyway. Okay, but there are some scenes that were deleted um, for the Disney Have a Laugh version. And I, some of these were, were really good scenes, too. Like um, Pluto waking up from his nap. Because just the, just seeing him wake up and stretch and all that. I mean, there's some good animation there. Pluto pacing across the yard to spot where he had buried his bone. Pluto's first encounter with Goldenrod that makes him sneeze. The first appearance of the gopher as it gathers the goldenrod together before going back down into its hole. As Pluto paws around in the gopher's hole, he inadvertently ends up tickling it before grabbing onto a bone. The gopher rubbing its head after Pluto runs over it as he runs after the bone. The gopher pacing back and forth in front of Pluto with the goldenrod before spraying it in the dog's face. The face-off between Pluto and the gopher... Pluto chasing um, the gopher uh, across the garden and getting his head stuck in a watermelon. The gopher digging out under Pluto and tickling the dog as a distraction so it can run off with the bone. That's a very funny scene. The gopher throwing goldenrod in Pluto's face so that he will sneeze and not be able to chase after the gopher. The gopher struggling to save its home after Pluto inadvertently steps in its hole. And Pluto chasing after the gopher underground. I, I don't know what's left of this cartoon. I mean, <laughs> so for have a laugh. But. Yeah, uh, don't ever watch any have a laugh versions of anything. It's The, the joke in there, the, the have a laugh is how much they butcher these cartoons in this way. Yeah, yeah. I And, and they are available on YouTube. You can see both versions. Yeah. The long version, have a laugh version, and take the extra four minutes and and watch the real one. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's good story, but you know you lose the character development, you lose, uh, you know, you lose some good animation by watching the Have a Laugh yep. series. Yeah. Well, at ten twenty-five, we meet the littlest horse thieves. This was released in the United States on March eleventh, nineteen seventy-seven, on a double bill with the Many Adventures of Winnie the Pooh. So there you go, Craig. There's there's Winnie the Pooh. Um, in the United Kingdom, it was released on May twenty-six, nineteen seventy-six, under the title Escape from the Dark. The film was directed by Charles Giraud, who had directed Anne of a Thousand Days and Mary Queen of Scots. So this this is a big time director. It was produced by Ron Miller and it stars Alastair Sim in his final film role as Lord Harrogate, the owner of the local coal mine. Peter Barkworth as Richard Sandman, the manager of the coal mine, and Maurice Colborne as Luke Armstrong, the stepfather of two of the littlest horse thieves. It is based on a novel by Rosemary Ann Sizin, who wrote the screenplay. Now, the film is set in a Yorkshire coal mining town in 1909. And the new manager of the mine hopes to improve an unprofitable operation by introducing machinery that will speed the transfer of ore from the coal face to the surface. This automation will eliminate the need for a stable of pit ponies to haul the ore wagons. Learning that the pit ponies will be sent to the slaughterhouse, three children, the manager's daughter, Alice, who's played by Chloe Franks, and the two boys, Dave and Tommy, Andrew Harrison and Benji Bolger, whose minor father died in a cave-in and whose mother has remarried with another minor, conspire to kidnap and shelter the animals. They brave considerable danger, but are discovered soon after completing the rescue mission. Now, filming began on September 2nd, 1975 in Yorkshire and at Pinewood Studios under the original title Pit Ponies. 
the film was shot at the Thorpe Hesley Mine near Sheffield, which had been closed nearly two years, and used 250 local people, many of them former miners. The Walt Disney Studio built a new old mining town around several 19th century buildings and a 60-foot iron winding machine. The Littlest Horse Thieves does a remarkable job portraying miners' lives and rights, uh, also portraying life in a company mining town, the social caste system of that era, and the beneficial rights due to faithful old pit ponies. Um, However, you know, I believe that the ending casts much of that aside with its abrupt, happy solution. Uh, One point in the film, the miners go on strike, led by the boy's stepfather, in support of the children and the pit ponies, in spite of the threat of losing their jobs and the mine closing. And I don't know, this stretches credibility a bit because you know this is a mining town and if the mine closes and they lose their jobs they have nothing else um no no other way to support themselves they don't even have homes anymore because the mine owns the homes yeah makes sense (laughs) you know um alistair sims perhaps channeling his, you know, best-known character, Ebenezer Scrooge, goes through a thinly explained transformation, which leads to the film's conclusion. Um, So now, Craig, you've not seen this film, right? No, I have definitely not seen this one. Um, It sounds very much like a movie. Oh, it's, you know what? It is a good film. Um, it is action packed. You, again, this is, this is one where you have to let the story play out. Um, despite my criticism of it, um, it, you know, it's excellent character development, but this depicts a life that is long gone. This is where I think parents can have great family discussions about, the hardships that the, the the hardships of this life of mining coal, especially in this day and age where the, there was no technology. I mean, they're going down there with candles, you know, in lanterns, and, and how mm-hmm. dangerous that is. But the the whole social caste system, and that's brought up because of the, you know, the family of the manager and how some of them look down on the workers and won't even associate with them. And don't want the daughter associating with the two boys. Um, the little girl who the, the 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 children actors are brilliant. The little girl Chloe Frank sort of steals the film, and her character, the little girl, ends up being the hero of of this whole thing. So it's a really it's it's a really good story because she has access to knowledge through her father that no one else has because he's the manager. So she can ask him questions that ultimately leads to their uh rescue attempt for the ponies. Um you you really feel the the sort of the hard gritty life of living in a coal mining town at the beginning of the you know the 20th century here yeah so um it's really well done and it's unfortunate that they sort of came to a swift conclusion but it's still this is still really a worthwhile film to watch i'll definitely go into it with uh with an open mind to it so mm-hmm. on paper it does it, it sounds very slow but uh, that doesn't mean I'm not going to enjoy it. I've I've enjoyed many many things that are definitely on the on the slower side of things. So and mm-hmm. it's it's at that it, it was made in that bonkers time period of Disney where everything was just a little bit strange and they there's always moments that that can make you smile. So yeah. and this feels like it was made during Walt's time. It Even really better, does. Then. It's it's a throwback really to that era of storytelling, character development, transporting you 
back to a whole different way of life, giving you insights into that life. Uh, there, there, there's also a couple really hard lessons to learn here that where the children really have to consider is, you know, rescuing the pit ponies, you know, they've lived all their lives in a cave, bringing them up to the surface. Um, there are, there are repercussions of that to the ponies that they didn't consider. Ponies who have animals who have never seen the light or don't remember seeing the light and feeling grass under their feet. They, the, you know, they're children that, that didn't, they didn't think of what mm. the implications might be for those animals. Yeah. So interesting. Um, so so it is interesting. It, 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 it's definitely very. I think it's well told. It's 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 unfortunate for the um, the sort of the quick ending. But even but the ending is still satisfying. I just think that maybe they could have taken a little more time to play it out. Hmm. You know. Yeah. So. So. So next week we will discuss the treasures from the Disney Vault being broadcast from one fifteen a.m. to five a.m. But now we'll see how many film references there are in our this week in Disney history quiz. So Craig, are you all set? I think so. I, I right. hope you did continue the movie train with it. I feel like sometimes I do better with those ones. <laughs> well, we'll see. Okay. We'll see. Okay. Okay. All right. Well, this week we're looking at the week of June 16th. So starting with June 16th, the SS Rice Victory, a 10,500-ton U.S. warship, was christened on June 16th, 1945. What is its Disney connection? Um, I'm going to take a bizarre guess on it. I'm probably going to be wrong, but, um, is it the ship that's at the end of Lieutenant Robinson Caruso? Well, you know, that I don't know, but that's not, that's not its Disney connection I was thinking of. Okay. Well, I, I, I'm sure I was wrong on that. I'm just trying to think of anything else with a ship and... I'm not, and I'm stuck on movies now. So. Yeah, now th- it's the christening that maybe is a little more important here. Uh, did Walt christen it? You're very close. Walt Disney's wife, Lillian Disney, christened the ship. Oh, hmm. yeah. That's. I mean, okay. <laughs> <laughs> so. All right, June 17th, singer-songwriter T- Terry. Gilkison, a name not well remembered today, but very influential in the world of pop and folk music, is born Hamilton Harry Henry Gilkison in in Phoenixville, Pennsylvania, on June seventeenth, nineteen sixteen. Known for his group Terry Gilkison and the Easy Riders, their version of Marianne was a million seller. What is his Disney film connection, Craig? I know <laughs> at least. Um he worked on Bare Necessities. That's correct. And I just, I mean, obviously, while we were doing this episode, I looked it up. I know he did something with the Moon Spinners. Uh-huh. And I I think he did a couple more, but I, I definitely know those two. Right. You're right. In the 1960s, he left his group and began working on movies for the Walt Disney Studios. He wrote the music for Swiss Family Robinson, The Aristocats, and The Moon Spinners that we just talked about. He wrote the song, The Moon Spinners, along with the television program, The Wonderful World of Disney. In 1968, he received an Academy Award nomination for writing The Bare Necessities for The Jungle Book, the film's only song not written by the Sherman Brothers. Mm-hmm. Yeah, very good. Okay. June 18th. What opened at the Magic Kingdom at Walt Disney World on June 18th, 1988? Actress Cindy Williams from the 1970s sitcom Laverne and Shirley and First Lady Nancy Reagan participated in the ribbon-cutting ceremony. I believe this would have been uh, would have been Birthday Land. 
That's right, Mickey's Birthday Land, located between Fantasyland and Tomorrowland. It's past the Tomorrowland Speedway. Guests can also arrive via the Walt Disney World Railroad. So, And this had been built to honor Mickey's 60th birthday, which will take place in November. It was a cute little land. I remember taking the train there, and he had those little plywood cutouts telling you, hey, you're on your way to Mickey's Birthland, because there's nothing else to look at on your way there. (laughs) I mean, I was more of a Mickey's Starland person myself, Mm -hmm. but... Yep, that would have opened in May 1990. Okay, June 19th. Voting begins for Discovery Channel's Greatest American on June 19th, 2005. Amongst the top 25 nominees is Walt Disney. Where did he rank on the list when the votes were tallied? I have no idea. (laughs) It it was, ironically, it was his favorite number. There's a hint for you. I don't even know that. Oh. Well, it's one of the reasons Disneyland's official address is 1313. It's Walt Disney will be voted in at number 13 between Thomas Jefferson Hmm. and Albert Einstein. Ironically enough, that's 13 is also my lucky number. There you go. Yeah, yeah it was his very favorite. A, that's why there's a lot of 13s scattered around in films wow. and theme parks and all kinds of places. That's so. why, I, I mean, that was my number for every uh, sports team that I played on that required a number. Unfortunately, when I played tennis, that didn't didn't have a number for that. But everything else that I could, I always mm-hmm. chose 13. And uh, my wife and I got married on Friday the 13th. I love 13. Oh, good. So so your croquet jersey, your number 13? (laughs) Yes, yes, absolutely. (laughs) Okay. June 20th, Walt Disney's first animated feature to incorporate extensive live-action footage and the only theatrical release to feature Walt himself is released on June 20th, 1941. What is the name of the film? That is The Reluctant Dragon. That is correct. I know that's one of your favorite films. Yes, it is. And it's starring comedian Robert Benchley. The first third of the film is in black and white. It's sort of very Wizard of Oz-ish, and Oz-ish, I should say. And the remaining two-thirds are in Technicolor. Robert Benchley visits the Disney studio in Burbank to sell Walt Disney the idea of making a film of Kenneth Graham's book, The Reluctant Dragon. After explorations of an art class, dialogue stage, sound effects stage, multiplane camera department, story and animation departments, he discovers Walt has already finished the cartoon version of the story. And you have to watch this, kids, because you meet a lot of the nine old men, you meet a lot of the people that we talk about on this show, and uh, so it's very cool. I mean, they they had like the real people that made the films at the Walt Disney Studio, you know, in this. Um, The premiere held at the Pantages Theater in Hollywood is disrupted by a mob of Walt's striking Disney artists and animators. So the police had to cordon off Hollywood Boulevard around the theater for fear of what the disgruntled strikers might do. They ended up doing nothing. Okay. On June 21st, 2011... The D23 Fan Club held a special event at the El Capitan Theater in Hollywood to celebrate the 20th anniversary of what film? And it was the first film to debut at the newly restored El Capitan Theater in 1991. Ooh, um... This is another film you really like, too. Well, that doesn't help that I like a lot of movies. I'm not. I'm not quite sure. So <laughs> well, I'm trying it stars to... stars Bill Campbell, Jennifer Connelly, the Rocketeer, Alan Arkin. Yeah. That's right, Timothy Dalton. It's the Rocketeer. Yeah, great, great movie. It is. I. I. If we ever do a, a episode on underrated Disney films, this is definitely one. Oh, for I think it sure. would be in there. Yeah. No, I a hundred percent agree. So uh, I, I have no doubts too that it will be on Disney Plus when that comes out. And I think 
a, a whole generation of people who missed out on the Rocketeer are going to to watch it and really discover it for the first time and yeah and uh, hopefully fall in love with it. Um, you know, it's it, that's not going to be the case for the black hole. Uh, no one's going to no. fall in love with that, but. It, it, and every once in a while you hear that the strange little rumor, oh, they're going to do a reboot of The Rocketeer. They're going to do a sequel to The Rocketeer. And, you know, it'd be nice. Yeah, I mean, it's... <laughs> I, uh, I would love it. Oh, know? I would too. I mean, it's, yeah. especially if you get Jennifer Connelly back in there. I mean, mm-hmm. it's she's still a big star. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> okay, June 22nd, Walt Disney's first feature-length cartoon produced in Cinemascope goes into general release on June 22nd, 1955. What is the name of the film? 1955. That would have been Lady and the Tramp. That's right. Okay, directed by Clyde Geronimi, uh, Wilfred Jackson, and Hamilton Lusk. The film features the voices of Peggy Lee, who also has co-written the music, Barbara Luddy, Larry Roberts, and Bill Thompson. Of course, this is a romantic tale of a sheltered uptown Cocker Spaniel dog and a streetwise downtown mutt. The idea for the film comes from a short story by Ward Green entitled Happy Dan the Whistling Dog. And, of course, you do know they're making a live-action version of this for Disney+. Plus. Yeah, I think, um, yeah, isn't Justin Thoreau the voice of the tramp, I think? And I don't remember who the I don't who know. lady is, but I, listen, I'll give it a, I'll, I'll go in with an open mind. I guess. Uh, they're making, um, oh, the Scotty Dog, they're going to make it a female. Well, it's yeah. just... I, I mean, don't know. I like that he was gruff and yeah, know. but it's. I mean, that was back in that day. It had to be an angry Scottishman. Now, nowadays things have changed, and women can be angry Scottishmen too. <laughs> and I mean that all as a complete joke. Like it, it's. it's I mean, it's. It, it's a. It's based on a cartoon. Change whatever you want. It's. We still have the cartoon version and. We'll have a live-action version, and they can both live in harmony the the same way that Aladdin and Aladdin do, and the same way Sleeping Beauty and Maleficent do. Uh, we're not we're not going to give that credit. Beauty and the Beast doesn't get credit on that. Um, those should not exist. No, no, no. It's my Jesuit upbringing. Your philosophy for philosophy to be valid, it has to apply in every situation. Yeah. Okay, fair enough. Anyway, um, yeah, and of course they're cutting out the controversial Siamese cat song. I didn't know it was controversial. I had no idea. Yeah, I mean, I, I get that one. So I don't know. I like Siamese cats. So. Yep, it's uh, it's well, one of those. It's one of those ones where it's on the fence. Where it's it it, it probably should be in there because of of its place in in the, the the animated version but at the same time it's we do live in a very different time period now and it's a little bit stereotypical in a uh, way but they they could they could keep the cats and you know change the song a bit yeah i mean uh, but that would that would require some original thought <laughs> yeah oh well so all right well hey you did really well yeah, not too bad. I, was, I think just got stumped on what two there, three maybe, but uh, not not too bad. Yeah, good job. Well, if you miss any of these films that we've talked about in this episode, or your DVR is too full to record all of these, many are available on home video, various streaming services, and YouTube. So for references, I used the Disney films by Leonard Maltin, Walt Disney's Silly Symphonies, a companion to the classic cartoon series by Russell Merritt and J.B. Kaufman, websites, the Disney films, the Disney Wiki, Turner Classic Movies, and the New York Times and Washington Post archives. So, Craig, until next time, how can our listeners connect with you? 
As always, you can find me uh, on all the shows that we do throughout the week, the Walt Disney World Edition podcast, Disneyland Edition, Universal, Best and Worst of Walt Disney World, all of them. But uh, if you actually want to connect with me in a easier way on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, at Teleclaster. Michael, what about you? You can send me messages at Michael at WDWinfo.com. Twitter, I'm at mbowling121. Facebook, Michael Bowling. And look for the Connecting with Walt banner, because on my personal Facebook page, I, I post pictures of flowers and stuff, and no real Disney content there. Instagram, Michael Bowling the Diz. You can connect with me and Craig on Twitter at our official Connecting with Walt page, at Connecting Walt. If you would like to listen to more shows on the history of Walt Disney, his studio, his Imagineers, and Disneyland, check out our Disneyland podcast archives for my Disney history episodes at disunplug.com. And look for past episodes of Connecting with Walt on iTunes, where you can subscribe to our show and leave some positive reviews and ratings. Thank you for making us a part of your day. And remember, I only hope that we don't lose sight of one thing. That it was all started by a man, Walt Disney, and his brother Roy. <laughs>